One of the most common refrains that you'll hear being used to characterize Bengaluru is that its future is uncertain. It's what we could call the doomsday scenario. The city is going to run out of natural resources and it will be the beginning of its decline. It's pretty dystopian. But if you live in Bengaluru and you've met and interacted with its citizens, you'll know that it's not as simple as it's made out to be. In this final episode of Uru, we are asking, what is the future looking like? Welcome to Uru, a podcast that talks to Bengaluru citizens about how they are addressing sustainability in their city. I'm your host Manasi Pingre and I'm from the Bengaluru Sustainability Forum, an inter-institutional initiative that fosters conversations, builds bridges and encourages interdisciplinary collaborations, all working towards a sustainable future for our city. Uru is brought to you by the Bengaluru Sustainability Forum and Vaka Media. This is an episode in four parts. We bring you four different stories of how the city has shaped its people. Conversations about the future of cities, the formative experiences of an urban activist, the responsibilities of citizens, and a tale of Bengaluru's secret mascot, an original resident. We begin with a conversation between BSF member and Science Gallery Bengaluru's director, Janavi Farke, and journalist Samant Subramanian. They are discussing the fate of modern Indian megacities. Let's listen in. So, Samant, are you a big city boy? Unequivocally, yes. Apart from the fact that I have only lived in big cities all my life, my idea of a really good vacation is to go to another big city. So, yes, without a doubt, big cities through and through. If I may ask and probe you a little further on this, what is it about megacities and big cities that you like? And then, of course, the converse of it, what is it that actually disturbs you about them? I've had a very platonic sort of ideal of what a megacity should do or what a city should do, which is, in the broadest and most abstract sense, is to maximize the potential of the human beings who live in it. By which I not only mean that it allows them in the most obvious ways to sort of excel in things they do professionally, but also to enrich your life by exposing you to as much of the world as is possible within the confines of a city itself. And so if you are able to go to an interesting workplace and then you're able to do interesting things on the weekend and meet people you would never meet otherwise and learn things about the world, about yourself, I mean, all of these things are just, in my view, why the city is such an engine of creativity. It allows for all of this cross-fertilization between disciplines, between people and their minds sort of interacting all over the place. And so this is my ideal of what a city should do. This is what excites me about it. And then the reason I sort of sometimes despair of the directions in which some cities are headed is when the city manages to get in the way of maximizing the potential of its residents, by which I mean it makes it difficult commute within itself. It creates hierarchies within itself so that you end up meeting the same kind of people over and over again if you're in a particular circle. It's it's culture wanes, inequalities of class and of other divisions grow, and eventually it just becomes 
an aggregate of ghettos rather than one big organism that you know that kind of speaks to itself all the time we have to talk about dystopian views of cities i think often and maybe you do too of these cities that we see in science fiction the city we see in blade runner the movie there's always a sense of some kind of environmental calamity that has affected the air and the earth but it's also characterized by these huge divisions and these huge inequities you always see or read about how a protagonist moves between two worlds isolated circles of great wealth and in the grim poverty and drudgery there is almost sort of like an underworld of the downtrodden so those divisions between the haves and the have nots or between several classes of the haves and the have nots are what to me characterize the essence of a kind of urban dystopia one of the reasons why i find mega city is most interesting is the possibility for change right like it almost feels like it's the frontier of thinking new thoughts moving ahead producing new forms of you know living and life and institutions and so i think it's the change is the constant churn and movement with new people coming in all the time etc which i find very very interesting about mega cities at the same time the inequities that you speak about are precisely the ones that actually bother most of us right is dystopia always in the future it's possible to argue that some of this is already happening is i think what you're getting you had this lovely paraphrasing of the william gibson quote john we we spoke earlier which is the future of cities is already here it's just unevenly distributed one common trope of this dystopia that we talked about is cities are running out of resources and collapsing for that reason whereas the truth is that even before that happens people within cities will already have deeply unequal access to the resources that a city is supposed to provide some people will never run out of water because they will be able to pay for more and more of it others won't no city will ever run out of water all at once but the collapse will happen before then because of this unequal access to resources right we had an exhibition on water in bangalore called submerge and one of my learnings during that exhibition was that about 70% of water on the planet is utilized in agriculture in terms of a sense of proportion i think that is what surprised me you know because often when we talk about walking into the future more prepared or walking into the future taking individual action and individual agency doing things so that the future is different in many ways the structures that we inhabit might not allow for individual agency to have the kind of effect you know that we desire when conducted individually or in the isolation of a home right like or the isolation of a family unit for example i might turn off the tap as much as i can when i brush my teeth or i might be careful about using water at home but when it's one minuscule part of the remaining 10% that you know we are impacting then in a way what that brings home is the need for action in a very very different space not to the exclusion of of course but in substantial addition to what one might do alone or at home if we were to think of a few fault lines along which inequality inequity in a mega city is aligned or is organized what might be the ones you would think of i'm sure water is one of them water is definitely one i would say land use inequity in land use is deep and growing 
we can talk about this extensively. There's, you know, issues of public commons, there's issues of affordable housing, there's issues of just shortages of land that's at how cities grapple. I would say there's probably public transport, which is somehow sort of allied to the land use itself, but is quite distinct because it it has to do with how the residents of cities get between certain parcels of land that have been allocated for certain certain uses. And I think the fourth would probably be how a city treats its migrants. And that is a more political question, I feel, rather than anything else. You know, urban theorists talk about true urbanization and false urbanization. They say true urbanization has happened when, along with the city's growth and size, there's a concurrent expansion of organized non-agricultural jobs. False urbanization happens when there's no such, there are no such fulfilling jobs to be had when migrants are unable to improve their skills or learn new ones. So I think whether a city achieves true urbanization or false urbanization depends entirely on how it treats its migrants and how it connects them to the resources it has to offer. So maybe these are the four fault lines that we can talk about. I mean, and you know, your points earlier about individual agency are just are spot on. I mean, I think like, and in fact, I guess they're only likely to become more stark, you know, across the world right now. I think it's about 54% of the population lives in cities today. And the UN projects this proportional rise to 67% by 2050. And that is 67% of a much larger population base, which means the world's urban population will grow from 3.9 billion to 6.3 billion. It's an expansion of six or seven Sao Paulo cities every year. And so as these cities become bigger and bigger, as they hold more and more people, this question of individual agency and what it can achieve by, as you put it so well, turning off the tap while you're brushing your teeth, I think that becomes sort of more and more charged. And it becomes more and more clear that individual agency is best exercised in a political sense. Idealism still thrives in Bengaluru. This may come from privilege, but it also stems from a deep sense of compassion that the city seems to instill in its residents. In our next story, we speak to a young, spirited activist, Disha Ravi, about what about the city inspires her work. I'm Disha. I grew up on the outskirts of Bangalore my whole life. It takes me like two hours to get anywhere <laughs> close to the centre of the city, but I quite like living where I do because... There's a lot of greenery around, not a lot of traffic. It's a lot quieter also. And because it's so far away from everything, it kind of gives you that small town vibes when it's really not a small town. Disha spent a lot of her time growing up in her grandparents' house. And she says this is where she first saw what water scarcity looked like. They still fill up every single bucket with water and they have like special big, big buckets for just storing water, even when there is water. And it was only when I was, you know, like 18 and my mother was telling me stories about how when she was a child, she and her cousins would go to the common well that they had and bring water to the house. And this was a daily chore they had because they all lived together. This was her teenage years and this was what she spent her time doing in the morning. And that's when I realized that this isn't something that happens all the time. And water days are very, very most basic human right. So last November, my house got flooded again. This was the most recent one. I'd gone out to meet my grandparents. I was coming back. My uncle dropped me home. And I was home alone that day. And we couldn't enter the road, the main road of the entire neighborhood, because it was flooded. 
up until like the car's door. And I literally had to climb out and wade in like waist deep water to get home because I didn't want to leave my dog alone. I didn't know what happened to her, if she was outside or if my neighbors had put her in. And it was very scary, especially to be alone at a situation like this. Luckily, my neighbors had put my dog in because they had the keys. And it was horrible because this has happened before. And then the next morning, I read that a few kilometers away from my house, I live close to Yalanka, like not super close, but it's like 30 minutes away. And I found out that Yalanka had it was even worse there and they had to rescue people in boats and i'm like this is a landlocked city how is this happening here and it's getting worse each year and this has been an issue in my neighborhood for a while but it's getting worse even though we're trying to fix some of the infrastructure that will allow the water to flow more but it hasn't worked out because the rain keeps getting stronger her early experiences led her to work with communities on the ground and she believes that communities are the foundation of any change. We say this in the environmental movement that radically loves because it's been seen as such a weak thing to do that to love your neighbors, love the people you work with in like an unconditional way. And that's what we essentially do because the work we do is really, really focused on community building. It's about ensuring that we all have a livable planet to an extent ensuring the survival of humanity and it doesn't even sound dramatic when i say that anymore (laughs) because it is the truth and it's essential for us to have each other's back i know this firsthand because just being in the environmental movement with so many amazing people it's really what gives me hope it's the only thing that gives me hope actually that everyone is so so incredibly kind and i get to work with them every single day and they're so incredibly nice but they also just go out of their way to be kind to you which isn't something you would be used to on a normal basis and i think that's a narrative that we use because it's important for us to be there for each other In past episodes, we have talked a lot with people who are trying to drive change within our city. Avinash Krishnamurti and Shubha Ramchandran work with the Biome Environmental Trust, a group that works at the confluence of citizens' ecology and the environment. One of the things that Biome works on is groundwater, which is synonymous with the doomsday scenario in Bengaluru. The overexploitation of groundwater in Bengaluru has left the city in an extremely precarious position and water scarce. However, as a result, the city also has some of the most progressive water conservation regulations and a very active network of neighborhood groups that preserve, protect and revive the many urban water bodies that dot the city. So if we look at this growth, the physical growth part of it, the city's institutions now cannot keep track with this sheer physical growth. Therefore, even communities within the city, from a water perspective, have to rely on their own services. On one side, there is the market forces driving the water tankers and the borewell rigs and all of that. But on the other side, people are also saying, okay, how do I deal with these problems? Should I do rainwater harvesting? How do I use my wastewater? How do I reduce my consumption? You know, all these questions are also responses to these forms of growth, right? So a lot of the quote-unquote sustainable practices we see is also a responses to growth-induced stresses that people experience in their everyday lives. But I think the interesting other question of growth is now that a Sarjapur 
road has gone through this cycle and now that the utility is beginning to enter this place, right? How does the state now begin to see or the institutions begin to see this entry into a place which has gone through this cycle already? How do I retain those good practices but still come in and add value? Or will the BWSS be coming in and supplying water actually kill the practices? Continuing from where Avinash left off, so there are two situations. So one is where uh, people have figured out ways to manage all of this themselves. And then when the BWSSB, the utility comes saying that, here I can give you water, but there's no promise of delivery in the sense, when are they going to start? How, how often are they going to give you water? Is that going to be a guaranteed source or do people still have to fend for themselves? And largely, you know, the story across the city is that people have to continue to manage things for themselves. And also the cost of connection, new connection is quite high. So there are communities that are saying that we've gotten used to doing these things by ourselves. You set in place our own processes. So we're quite okay to not take your connection also because it's coming at a very high starting cost. So I do not want to make that investment. Instead, let me put that money into my own practices and then manage my water for themselves. So that's one part of the story. The other is, however, but also people conventionally are just used to getting water from a utility. You know that it is subsidized. You somehow assume that it's going to be of better quality and quantity than what you can do for yourself. It also comes from a lot of us being dependent on the city to be, I mean, to be the better provider of these resources. And you're not very comfortable with the idea that we can actually manage it for ourselves. So you say, okay, let's do all of this. These are a bunch of best practices, but if that's coming to us at a lower cost, then why not go ahead and take that resource? And that's what Avinash is speaking about. So in certain cases, it can actually disrupt some of the best practices that were built over a period of time and which require for people to be engaged, for those that infrastructure to be maintained. We have to be careful to see that the provision of this water doesn't take away from those best practices. So in this process of working with communities, and mostly they are communities which are upper middle class, really kind of upwardly mobile middle class, perhaps they're actually the elite. I mean, how do they get their knowledge? There is the borewell rig guy, there is the water tanker guy, there is the guy who redoes the borewell meat, borewell motor as winding is gone, so he has to do it. There's the local plumber. So you see, actually, there's a various forms of knowledge coming from all these kind of players and informing the actions of a lot of these communities which are landholding and which have the power to dig the well, extract the water and therefore they shape the resource landscape in some sense. What we have been doing is to try and take certain forms of knowledge and influence that. But also taking our knowledge about the city as a whole, certain forms of science to nudge these communities then to act in a certain way. That's been the crux of our work. And then also working with the livelihoods itself, the well diggers, you know, these actors, also trying to inform them. So how do we synchronize all these actors' actions in a way that net-net the city gains, right? Or everybody gains and the city gains, that the externalities are less. But in the process of doing this, what one realizes is that while there is the story of the borewell that has gone 800 feet deep or you know 900 feet deep and the Belandur coming in BBC with the foaming, the large doomsday stories as you say, one is finding locally saying that, hey, here is an apartment to work with this well digger and the borewell is so deep. But here it's the open well at the shallow level, there's water and that water is kind of in some form the most resilient source of water for this apartment. 
right so there is a solution there it's a part of the solution our fourth story is about the city's most native resident no it's not your grandfather in maleshwaram it's the least known shyest and most secret resident also possibly the cutest we are talking about the urban slender loris a tiny nocturnal primate the slender loris is found in the forests of southern india and sri lanka one of the few remaining habitats in these parts is the verdant indian institute of science at night if you walk across the campus you may hear its occasional shrill call and if you have a torch handy as you should you may be lucky enough to see its big round eyes shine through the dark in canada they are called card papa you might wonder how a small reclusive animal like the loris can still continue to survive in this concrete jungle bengaluru has always been known for its dense green cover that we still find in some pockets and it is in these small areas of wildness that all sorts of species including subuda loris live you're going to hear from dr kaberi kargupta a scientist from the city kaberi works on the slender loris and set up a citizen led slender loris study project we think about the slender loris as a possible mascot of the city his fate is tied to the future of this city's sustainability if we lose the trees he lives in if we convert the last wild areas in our city into sterile manicured spaces however green they may look we will lose what's left of the nature of the city and we don't know what that will do to us for a city the habitats are very heterogeneous the older part of the city which are planned or started by the british have really nice big canopy trees but then again you go to some other parts and you see that you know the very densely packed homes houses there isn't much in terms of canopy and then you go see little outskirts sort of like scrub forests so in terms of habitat it's pretty heterogeneous and also you have the lakes as a result of that it's had lot of i mean lot of biodiversity both in terms of invertebrates and vertebrates but probably in the early 2000s it changed so much and so drastically in terms of you know having being a silicon valley of india as well as the developers developing so that's what is challenging and that's what interesting that yet in spite of all these habitat destructions and this rapid urban growth we still have lorises or leopards or high number of butterflies so that's what i think is fascinating about bangalore in 2013 i think we were in bangalore for a while and that's when the idea of looking at lorises all over the city came up we started doing with iisc campus looking for lorises on campus we basically you know organized students and it turned out that lot of non biology students are interested in looking for lorises because they either heard about them or they knew something about them but they also not have seen what lorises are one thing i realized by then working in the us in urban areas as well as here that there's no way we can actually do any kind of conservation outside protected areas without having people in the ecosystem but it's not just for loris conservation this project i started with the idea that connecting people to nature what people know about the people's perspective of lorises we have done oral history recordings talking to people have this in lorises all of these are they connect with each other 
when you think about citizen science project, people think about, you know, data, getting volunteers, and it's so easy, you know, you probably will get lots of data. But actually, that's not true. It takes a lot of time and energy to start a citizen science project. But again, you know, I think if you have a successful citizen science project, it makes a big, big difference than for conservation, you know, because it's coming from bottom up. Conversations around sustainability and the future can be daunting. Through the course of this series, we have tried to capture the many different ways in which people are working on sustainability and the range of perspectives on our city's future. Bengaluru is but one of the many cities in India where citizens are taking an active role to improve the quality of urban life. Uru has been an effort to capture some of these conversations and we hope it inspires you to join in. Thank you for listening. This has been Uru. Thanks to Janvi Farke, Saman Subramanian, Avinash Krishnamurti, Shubha Ramchandran and Kaberi Gupta. And thanks again to everyone who has talked to us and supported the show. Thanks also to all the members of the Bengaluru Sustainability Forum, including Satyajit Mayor, Veena Srinivasan, S. Vishwanath, Uma Ramakrishnan and Janvi Farke. And thank you to Lena Robra, Gabriela Sims and Amiya Neelam. If you would like to know more about our work, you can go to our website at bengalurusustainabilityforum.org and follow us on social media at SustainBLR. Thank you. I'm Manasi Pingre.